0: Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure.
1: Hey guys, welcome to Channel Journeys. This is Rob Spee, your host of this podcast and CEO of Channel Journeys Consulting. We've got a fun guest today. His name is Carl Palachuk, and he, I would say, is the doctor of IT consultants and MSPs who want to improve their business. So Carl's mission in life is really helping what we think of as the MSP community, help them become better MSPs, help them become better partners for their vendors, And we talk a lot about the makeup of these guys, who they are, their new entrants that are coming on board, and what they look for in a vendor. So if you are a vendor that's looking to grow an MSP channel, or if you're an MSP yourself, you're going to find this really interesting. Carl does his work through speaking engagements, through coaching. He's got a membership community. You'll see him at a lot of events. He does his own coaching, and he has classes and seminars that he puts on. We talk about all of that in this podcast, a lot of great material. So let's just jump right into it. Here we go. Hey, Carl, good afternoon, or maybe good morning. How are you doing?
0: Very good, as always. Are you
1: in Sacramento now? Yeah. That's home for you.
0: Yeah, so you can see, I know this is audio, but in my background, I have a mural with the beach scene, and you know, this is kind of my my relaxation place at home.
1: I like that. I was going to say, it's very relaxing. I kind of either want to kick back on the beach or grab a surfboard and and go catch a wave.
0: Chair back here where I can just hang out and read. and
1: (laughs) The meditation chair? Well, you need that after being on the road so much. So
0: where were you actually born? I was born in North Dakota, but moved, I think I was three, we moved to Washington State. So I was raised in, in Eastern Washington in a town called Yakima.
1: Yeah, Yakima, which is now wine country, right? Well, I <laughs>
0: I can never think of it in those terms, but maybe not Napa Valley. I've heard people call it that. I live so close to Napa that you know when I look around here, we have Napa and Amador, and we have we have real wine in California. So,
1: well, yeah, you can be a wine snob now that you live down <laughs> in California. <laughs> Carl, you and I got a chance to meet. Harry Braselford introduced us. We met at the Channel Pro SMB Forum, which was just a month ago. And when we talked, I was impressed by how many different things you are doing. So
0: when you meet someone, how do you describe yourself and what you do? So... My short answer is that I train IT consultants and and I help them to be better at the business part of their business. Okay. So, it's short enough that if people have absolutely no interest, they can nod and say, "Okay, great." And, you know, how about those bears?
1: <laughs> well, that is a great short intro of what you do, and then they ask, "Well, how do you do that?"
0: Right. Well, so then the answer is, well, so I write books. I speak at conferences. I put on trainings. You know, I do audio programs. You know, I do a variety of things in support of helping IT professionals. Right.
1: And those IT professionals, would you say for the most part, they are MSPs?
0: Yes, or at least they might become MSPs. You know, okay. There's a lot of people who, you know, it's interesting. We're in an interesting era in our industry. Five years ago, eight years ago, I would have said, yes, they're MSPs. But today, a lot of people who were in the industry 10 years ago have either retired or gone out of business in the recession or have just you know, decided to leave altogether for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so we have a new influx of people who, if you're 18 or 20 years old or 25 and you're starting your first business, you have no idea what MSP is that that term by itself means absolutely nothing. And so <laughs> you think you're a computer consultant. You might even have heard about flat fee pricing, but you're essentially a break fix IT professional. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do, you know in the last couple of years and the next couple of years is to basically bring those people into the fold because they don't know they don't know anything about who distributors are who the vendors are, what products they should be selling. You know, there's a whole bundle of services that you have no reason to know if you just connect with seven other people who do what you do on Reddit and you try to figure it out yourself.
1: So this is really interesting. You're telling me that there is a whole fresh breed of 20-somethings jumping into this game and setting up IT consulting companies, but almost like break-fix shops?
0: Yes. In some ways, it's almost like going back 20 years. When you look at some of the Facebook groups, you see people asking exactly the same questions as people were asking in Yahoo groups in 2000. You know, what are you using to remote access? How, you know, what's, what's your favorite antivirus? You know, who are you reselling for cloud services, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's literally the same questions, Again, they don't know what the term RMM means. They don't know what the term PSA means. You know, we, like any other industry, we have our own terminology. And so you don't know what you don't know. And there's always people turning 18, 20, 25, graduating from high school, graduating from college, and deciding to get into this industry. And for the most part, we have made it a little hard for them to find us. (laughs) Because they have so much industry specific terminology that they have no reason to know.
1: Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. So I'm seeing it from the other perspective where the 20 somethings are forming software companies. You know, it's gotten so easy for them. They learn some coding. You got low code, no code development. You got free infrastructure with Microsoft's program everything is out there for you to launch a company with very low cost and you can just pick a target niche and start developing a software. The challenge then becomes, okay, I built it. Now, how do I sell it? Right. And so we've got two ends of the spectrum that need to meet in the middle and find each other <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and help help your breakfast guy learn how to sell solutions that our other 20-somethings are building.
0: Exactly. So yeah, it's a great time to be in this industry. And, and I think there's never been a better opportunity, you know. There's so many options available today of new things mm-hmm. to sell and new markets emerging and it's amazing. It really is. At the show,
1: one place I wanted to start was at the show you talked about what did you des- how did you describe it? I'm trying to look at my notes right now. The presentation that you gave, what was the title of that?
0: Welcome to the Exponential Century.
1: That's it. You talked about exponential thinking for people who weren't at your presentation, what do you mean by that? And why is that important to what we're talking about?
0: So exponential thinking is literally acknowledging that we are no longer in an era where we can think in a linear fashion. You know, human beings evolved with linear thinking, right? There's the bear. I need to run in the other direction. I'm in the middle. Okay. You know, it's literally a straight line away from the bear or towards the food or whatever. But we have not just in computers, but in many other industries, exponential growth in artificial intelligence, big data, you know, robotics, lighting. You know, there's so many things where the growth has been gradual for a long, long time, and that that you know hockey stick curve that everybody talks about. People think they're at a certain point in that the rocket's you know beginning to tip its nose up, um, and what they don't realize is that the growth. Does double every year, every year, every year. And so we're farther along in the hockey stick, in that growth rate than most people realize for all of these technologies. And I told the story about the growth of indexing the human genome project, right? And Ray Kurzweil, after seven years, they got to 1%. And people said, wow, you know, this is going to take us 700 years. And he said, No, if we're at 1%, we're almost done. And I love that story because if you think about things doubling, you know, in our industry, it's easy to count by, you know, factors of two because it's what we do, right? So you go from one to two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, and then you pop over 100%. And he was absolutely right. Six years later, we finished cataloging the human genome. And so I love the phrase if we're at 1%, we're almost there. And I think people really need to embrace that, you know, but you hear all the resistance about, oh, no, driverless cars won't happen in my lifetime. But, you know, we are already reporting driverless cars bumping into each other. So, you know, they're here, they're everywhere. They may just not be as visible to people who aren't looking. I just read a story about the pizza companies competing to be the first one to have 100% driverless delivery, right? Right. And once you think in those terms, then you stop focusing on the resistance and you start focusing on the opportunities and they are everywhere.
1: Are there any pizza companies that are at 1% yet on that delivery? Domino's. Really?
0: Yeah. So, so Domino's has an entire plan in place and they're actually delivering pizzas. They haven't got to the second stage, which is apparently... You can't have an oven in a car driven by a human without massive licensing. But if you take the human out of the equation, then different laws apply. So they, the next step is for you to order a pizza and they put the ingredients into the system and the thing takes off and cooks your pizza on the way, kind so that when it gets to your door, it is literally you take it out of the oven, right? It doesn't get fresher than that, right? So those are the kinds of things that are possible.
1: You know, Carl, I'm just laughing because this is the thing where our grandchildren are going to say, what do you mean you they actually made the pizza in the store before they delivered it to you?
0: <laughs> Half hour delivery. Ooh. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's like the rotary phone. Well, it is funny because if you watch movies or TV shows or whatever, and you look at something that was from literally the 70s, the 80s, people had to go find a telephone, right? I just had a, a conversation with somebody and we're trying to organize something. I said, well, I'm going to be in Las Vegas next week, but I'll have my phone with me, right? Of course, I'll have my phone with me. Like He would never consider that it's possible that I would not have my phone with me, right? And, and that's just a few years, right? That's not even fifty years or a hundred years or anything like that. So have you ever
1: heard of the futurist Daniel Burris?
0: Oh my God. I love Daniel Burris. So have
1: you read his latest book? I think it's called The Anticipatory Organization.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I love Flash Foresight. Yes. Yeah, truly great books. So I'm waiting for my copy to arrive. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, you will love it. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, he has all these great stories. One of the best lessons from Daniel Burris's work is that all of this technology, all of the future has already been created, right? That there's, there's things that sit dormant for decades before they become practical. And so if you think about whatever... Whatever technology is going to change the world in 2020, it's already here. Like somebody is building it and and prototyping it and trying it out with friends. And as soon as it becomes commercially viable, boom, it will be everywhere. And so, you know, it's really not that difficult to think about the future. So, you know, and again, driverless cars, I this morning was talking to somebody about, you know, I'm considering getting rid of my car altogether. Hmm. It's the beginning of April. I put on 710 miles on my car so far this year. So it's like, why am I making car payments and insurance payments, right? I'm going to Lyft everywhere. I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm not going to rent a car. I'm going to use Lyft. Right. And so if you think about what it means when people stop having their own cars, you know, you push a button and the driverless car shows up and takes you somewhere, but it doesn't have to park at my house. Think of what I can do with my garage. Yeah. Architects having to design houses where they no longer have the garage as the most visible feature of the house. Right, right. So architecture schools have to change to train people how to create the world that they know for a fact is coming into existence.
1: Yeah. And along those lines, I wonder what we should be anticipating in the channel. Obviously, we're seeing... The impact of the cloud and artificial intelligence, the fact that we were just saying it's driving the birth of tons of new software companies. One of the things I'm seeing is this convergence of the channel. And I was chatting very recently with Craig Schlagbaum from Comcast, and he was talking about this. And he's seeing it with his channel partners and seeing a convergence. And I think those are coming from the agent perspective who are becoming more like MSPs. We have VARs who are converging to become looking more like MSPs. Is everyone going to start looking like an MSP?
0: Kind of. What's interesting is that there will always be, quote unquote, break fix. There'll always be some neighborhood kid that will set up your audio video system and you know all of your even really high end equipment uh, so that your game room and your, your home theater are awesome. And they will make a ton of money. And for them, a ton of money is a thousand dollars. On the other hand, uh, there are pros that will do this with, you know, good connections and you know, all the stuff that goes on in the background. And they will make twenty thousand dollars and then they will sell a maintenance contract to come back and make sure your home theater is doing everything you needed to do. So there will always be those two different markets. And but I think that. As more and more things move to networking and TCPIP, that again, we have opportunities in signage, artificial intelligence, big data. Like, if you can think of it, there's a market for it, and there's a high, medium, and low end of the market. And you yeah. can anywhere you want.
1: As I talk to clients, and whether it's a security company, uh, analytics firm, documentation technology, whatever it is, They all want to find an MSP. They want to tap into this, you know, thousands of partners that are out there serving the mid-market. Right. That's their dream. Is that a realistic dream? Do those MSPs even have the capabilities to, to serve that kind of technology?
0: Well, the interesting thing is that they have the potential. So whether they choose to do it or not is a different story. Probably one of the most successful partners I know has, you know, started with, you know, IT consulting, moved into managed services, focused very heavily on the automotive industry. And to that end, he now is at the point where uh, entire automobile dealership families come to him when they're going to put in a new dealership. So he walks around the construction site and says, I want network drops here, 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 here. We're going to put in wireless. We need a public network and a private network. We need security cameras at all these locations. And he's in at the point where they are spending tens of millions of dollars on a new dealership, right? So he's getting in now into the lighting, the signage, right? the, The printers, all of it. And it's mostly because He looks at it from, quote-unquote, technology, and he doesn't care what the technology is. He wants to own it if it's technology in a car dealership.
1: Right. So if I was an analytics company and I thought that someone could develop a dealership, sales inventory, marketing automation solution, would he be the right partner to go to and and work with him to develop that IP on top of my technology?
0: absolutely. And in fact, see, he could give you, like, these people are flexible enough that they'll try it out and they'll be a good pilot. You don't want to try it out with these people because they're, you know, quite rigid. And, you know, when it's done, we'll sell it to them. But, you know, when you get, when your knowledge becomes that deep, you have many more opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the things that divides, you know, high end from low end is how many verticals, right? If you service everybody, then you have no specialty. But if you narrow it down, you know, it's counterintuitive. Yes, you have a smaller market, but you own that market.
1: And your profits go up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And your opportunities. I mean, at some point, if you are the only person to call, what people say, oh, you know, call who you want to talk to is Rob because he is the one person that knows all this stuff. Right. There's no competition.
1: Yeah. And so is that generally the advice you're giving to most of your clients is pick a vertical find some specialization.
0: You know, if if people are super broad, I will tell them, pick two or three verticals, you know? But like for us, we sort of stumbled onto a vertical that had uh, a lot of accountants and enrolled agents. And so when we started developing our hardware as a service, we actually had an offering specific to them because I know the cycle of their business in a 12-month period, right? So that helped us define a product that made sense for their market.
1: When you say us, you're referring to your own IT consulting firm?
0: Yeah. So I've, I've owned two, I've built two different IT companies and, in Sacramento and sold okay. them.
1: Okay. <laughs> and you sold them all off to focus on your consulting business.
0: Yeah. Well, I sold the first one and then I went to work. I went, you know, started basically working with him, kind of coaching him. That was part of our deal, is that I hung around for three years. And then when he sold it again, I. Sort of felt like, oh, all right, I'll just go start another one. You know, I, I couldn't help myself. There's so much money <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so do
1: you, are you Do you think you could be lured back in again with all this opportunity?
0: I'm afraid so. I, I have to fight it. <laughs> I was at, I think it was either that Channel Pro event or then I went off to CompTIA. I went to Robin Robbins and then I went to CompTIA. And there's certain presentations I look at it and I say, oh, my God, I have to go do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So... Sometimes I, I can't help myself. I just see opportunity everywhere. So
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. And I, I know that I'll have that tug too. I'm really just building out my consulting practice. And I love sharing my expertise and helping companies. But you also get that itch to, to jump in. And there's so much opportunity today.
0: At the end of the day, I I sold my last business because I literally, I wanted to do this world tour in 2017. And so I had to be done with it and out enough to go on the road. And I, you know, I could have hired an employee to take it all over and all that. But I just decided that, you know, you you, you can't have two masters, you know, so... (laughs) It was better for me to be completely out. and But, you know, the good news is I have several people I work with that they call me in for bigger projects or some management, that kind of stuff. And so I get to stay in technology enough to actually, you know, continue to to gather up those client stories, you know, good, bad or indifferent.
1: Right, right. When you're working with, let's say, the higher end of the MSP world, what are the biggest challenges that they are facing that you're helping them with?
0: Well, what's funny is, you know, when people in, for me anyway, the higher end is, you know, $5, $10 million and above, mm-hmm. a lot of their challenges are around trying to wed themselves from the standard operating procedures and the culture that got them where they are, because they need different stuff to get to the next level. And, you know, assuming that they're not trying to just place themselves to be sold in this you know, mergers and acquisition frenzy are going through. Right. You know, assuming that they want to actually grow their business and continue to double, it's harder to double from 10 to 20 million than it is to double from, you know, 500,000 to 1 million. It's almost easy. You know, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's almost yeah. easy to go from 500 to a million. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people always have this vision of, okay, now how do I do this again and again and again? So a lot of times when companies grow to a certain point, they may have processes and procedures that no longer fit. They can have employees who no longer fit. They might be stretched across different states or different areas. And so, you know, there's some different challenges that they have. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, They didn't get there by doing a lot of stuff wrong. (laughs) So, So they have to isolate what are the really, really good processes that we can identify that got us where we are. And then how do we continue to grow the culture in a way that we want to grow it? That
1: sounds very similar to me when I'm working with companies who have gotten to a certain stage and have plateaued with their channel program. And they've just reached a level where they need to do something differently. And it could be the right people, the right processes, the right technology. But it sounds like a very similar engagement.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times we get stuck on where we are, right? We put the blinders on and, you know, That's why I encourage people to look at new technology so much is there might be something that is just super close to what you're doing, but not quite there. That could be a huge opportunity.
1: Is that the biggest opportunity for these partners for their growth? You know, how do they get from a 10 to $20 million company?
0: Well, that, you know, obviously varies by company, but most of the time it's a matter of setting your sights on it and then saying, all right. How do you, you know, how does an ant eat an elephant one bite at a time? So, mm-hmm. you know, how do we put the system in place so that we can then fill it with people, fill it with, with clients and so forth. Um, nobody gets that big without marketing, without promoting, you know, it's hard for somebody at the very low end to have a full-time salesperson, but at the higher end, you have no choice. You have to mm-hmm. have a sales staff, which means, right. you know, there's an entire overhead there. And you have to have a really good sales manager. At the same time, they got to work really well with the rest of the team. You can't sell stuff that you don't deliver, right? You know, again, it all, everything is related to everything else because then you, you have to build a culture of people being responsible to one another, responsible to the client. And a lot of times when people are focused completely on growth they become more sales, more sales-oriented than they are service-oriented. And so that can hurt you in the long run, right? So it is hard. There's no question about it. On the other hand, lots of people have done it. And so, you know, any, any specific person I'm talking to, I know that they could do it too.
1: Yeah. And I've met countless partners. They're, they're doing great, but it's the CEO is the salesperson. He's the marketing department. He's trying to do it all. And you see so much potential, but it gets so frustrating trying to convince him to invest in that sales talent.
0: Well, it's interesting. At the low end, I think people hire sales professionals too soon. Mm -hmm. The owner has to be the salesperson for a long, long time. But then, like you say, there, there is a tipping point where the owner has to turn that over to somebody else. And managing salespeople is really, really difficult. And, you know... There's almost an irony that nothing that you've done before that prepares you to manage a salesperson. <laughs>
1: <Because> <laughs> Sounds like parenthood.
0: It is. I mean, the first thing is people make the same mistakes again and again and again. When you know, when when you're approaching the point where you need more sales and and the sales, the, the owner's been the salesperson, a good solid salesperson for a few years. You need to then engage somebody to help you find a salesperson and a sales manager. And those are two different people. So you almost have to hire two at the same time or train somebody in your management team to manage the salesperson. An unmanaged salesperson will spend all their time building a funnel, getting leads, Doing all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with sales. They will jump in and redo the design on your envelopes and your letterhead and your website. And you're like, stop it. You know, that you can't do that. You have to go do sales. <laughs> and then, if you give them leads, they say the leads are bad. <laughs> and then, if the leads are good, they say the product mix isn't right. Right. And right. so they've got every single excuse on earth to take a draw and not do any sales year after year if you let them. So there there have to be strict limits that you, you have to be willing to hire somebody, make them your friend, bring them into your company, and fire them the minute that they don't reach their goals. And that's really, really hard, especially in a small business where these people become our friends. So, you know, there is that tipping point, but you change the nature of your business when you get there.
1: I had that exact problem when I launched a startup as a reseller and my first hire became friends and he just was not selling. And I waited way too long to make the decision that we had to make a change.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you the conversation that we just are having has cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. So (laughs) I'm not speaking, uh, you know, theoretically here at all.
1: Yes. (laughs) It's a painful experience that many of us have been through.
0: So, yeah. So, you know, There is a point where, like when you you begin seeing it coming, you know that that's the decision you have to make, and you don't really have any choice. Engage somebody who can help you, you know, manage your sales team, and there's plenty of professionals out there.
1: Yeah. So going back to my comment earlier about we've got on one hand all these new software companies, software as a service companies, and the other hand all these new MSPs, IT consultants. How do we bring them together? What are, are you seeing any really effective ways for these new SaaS vendors to find these guys and find the right ones?
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, there are these two circles, you know, the vendors and the um, IT professionals, and the place that they meet is at conferences, right? The place that they, you know, learn about each other might be online, but at some point, at a conference, there's something clicks when they sit in a room and they see opportunity after opportunity in front of them. And then they wander the vendor hall and realize, oh, all of this really hard stuff that I've been doing, somebody has a product that just does it. Right? And then they got to figure out how to make money with that. And so, you know, there's a circle of products, there's a circle of IT pros, there's a circle of events, and then there's the online communities and they got to get all of those working Because you can get fired up at a conference, but if you go home and get overwhelmed, well, then you don't make any changes. Uh, You and I were talking before about, you know, finding mastermind groups, finding people that you can trust. You know, one of the problems with online communities is that on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, right? Remember that old New Yorker cartoon? So everybody can give you advice on Reddit or Facebook and you have no idea whether they are, making a million dollars a year or scratching and clawing to get their next break, fix job so that they don't have to go get a real job.
1: Right. <laughs> Any conferences stand out for you where you've seen really good matching taking place?
0: So it's interesting. There's I go to so many conferences, right? At some level, they're all good. I love the Channel Pro events, which is where you and I first met. They're good and they're friendly and they're very inviting. So if you're totally new to the industry, You will not be alienated in any way, right? Some events, uh, the ASCII events, for example, are completely vendor focused, right? It is all about introducing you to vendors. The ASCII group is a great place to help you manage your vendors, get a new vendor, get good discounts without having to have high sales. You know, you can get in, like, for example, at a silver level just because you're an ASCII member. And they'll intervene with you on behalf of, you know, vendor relationship. SMB TechFest is great. That's in Anaheim once a quarter. And, you know, that's one where there's a lot of vendors, but there's also a lot of content, you know. And, uh, you know, in in some sense, Channel Pro is all about content. ASCII is all about vendors. TechFest is somewhere in the middle. The folks who are members of the Robin Robbins community that he has a vendor hall that's unbelievable, right? And those are people who are, you know willing to spend money, right? Nobody's at that conference without the ability to spend money. And so the vendors totally love it. And newer folks who kind of wander in there uh, quickly get introduced to the idea that it does take money to be in this business and the people Mm -hmm. who are willing to spend it grow faster than people who are not willing to spend it.
1: Right. Do you have a sense of what these MSPs, IT consulting companies, are looking for in a vendor? What turns them on and what turns them off from from vendors and how they act with partners?
0: Well, I I can tell you from just sitting in the audience, looking at the reactions when vendors get up on stage. Mm -hmm. Too many vendors send people to these events that are not good presenters. They're good salespeople, but they're not good presenters. And the result is people in the audience are saying, how do I make money with your product? And the vendors up there saying, we got a file menu. And then when you go file, there's an open option. And then you can open any one of these files. People are like, oh my God, how do I make money, right? I don't care that you have this many speeds and feeds and, right? The best vendor presentations are the ones where they literally say, I will show you how to get new clients. I will show you how to make money with this product. You know, don't, you don't have to give specific numbers, but just say, you know, we've helped our people solve their clients' problems, get them clients who love them for life, and then they never leave them, right? Or right. We're, we're the missing component in your managed service offering, right? And mm-hmm. got this hole that we fill. Yeah, Basically, it's the same as what we have to do to our clients. You got to solve a problem. And for most of right. us- That problem is either clients or money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So once they've done the courting and the dating and they sign up with a partner and they're in that partner's partner program, are there any consistent complaints that you hear or consistent praises of vendors' programs?
0: Well, I think, uh, I don't know that I hear a lot of consistent complaints, but the complaints that stand out to me are the ones where people feel like, when they go to certain events, they feel totally engaged and loved. Then they get back home, and nobody answers the phone, and <laughs> you know the the, hey, the the promises, even for simple things like you know MDF funds or literature, like nobody responds to them. And you know it's sort of like I don't know what the internal workings are at the channel partner events, but my suspicion is that there people are not giving. Given the right incentives to actually close the deal with the IT service providers, they get incentivized to sign them up, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily to uh, knock them down.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That probably is a, a, a frequent problem. It's the same thing I think happens in trade shows when you're trying to do new sales and you get a hundreds of new leads and then they just go get thrown in a closet somewhere. And <laughs>
0: right. Well, it's also the case that sometimes when you lead with a certain thing, you know, Intel used to always have this deal where you go sit through a day of training and we'll give you a the latest processor, which is you know five six hundred bucks worth of you know product. Well, if you lead with a freebie, even if it has a lot of value that's not necessarily connected to an activity that gets you to go out and now sell 10 of these a month, right? And so sometimes there's a disconnect between what they do for lead generation and what they do for trying to get people to actually engage. I've been involved in more than one lead generation program where if the metric is new partners signed up, they're hugely successful. If the metric is, New partners who actually sold something in the first year, well, they don't necessarily <laughs> meet those requirements. And, and part of it is the lead gen was focused on freebies and warm bodies rather than on performers who are actually going to embrace the technology.
1: I have stepped into several channel chief roles where the predecessor must have been measured on signing new partners <laughs> because I step in and we have hundreds and hundreds of partners who are doing nothing and then...
0: right then
1: we have to step in and trim down and find the ones who are really willing to invest.
0: Right. Well, it's funny. So I remember, I will not name the company, but I did a, did a big road show with the company one time. And uh, their goal was to get 100 partners. And we signed up 800 partners. And then they came back and said, most of these people are not selling anything. And I'm like, that was not my job. <laughs> I can bring you the sheep if you can't shear them, you know, that's not my problem. So, yeah. But I've also been involved with programs where people say, "Look, there is a barrier of entry. You need to meet these requirements if you want the giveaway, right? And and so it's not for everybody. You got to you got to bring us a contract. You got to sign up two people, right? If you sign up two people, we'll give you a break on the on the third client. Stuff like that where you know, you, you bring in performers because there's people have different personalities. You know, and you've been to conferences. There are people who go to conferences so they can eat free food for a day. And you're just like, you know, why are you even here? And there's other people who go and what they need to do is find one little thing that fills out their offering so that they can sign 10 more clients. Obviously, the vendor wants that second kind of partner. So you got to figure out what are the surrogate measures to attract those people versus somebody else. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's a a lot of dynamics playing there. So jumping back into what you do, you have a lot of different components to your business and the way that you're delivering this service to help IT consultants grow their business. Let's talk about that a little bit. You do actual consulting work and coaching work. What else do you do to, to help these guys?
0: well so i have a series of 5 week classes so every year i think we have 17 or 18 different classes now but every year we pick 10 classes and we put them on and you know over the course of the year there are basically 50 weeks worth of classes and uh, i'm just in the middle of a class now on project management how to have you know perfectly profitable projects every time in the small business space and so Those are one hour a week for five weeks. We have homework. So we actually give assignments for people, you know, and then if people turn it in, you know, it's it's optional, but uh, I will give them some feedback on that. And there's a lot of people kind of get addicted to these classes, right? They take one and they see so much value out of it. Then they take the next and the next and the next, which obviously is what we want. And then I also have in my community, the uh, Small Biz Thoughts community, we have some what we call mini classes. So these are probably not enough material for a three or a five week class. But what we do is three smaller classes. For example, we're going to be offering one in April on client onboarding. So how do you create a client onboarding process? And what does the checklist for that look like? So that some pieces of the checklist are done by the sales department, the customer service department, the the service delivery Right. How do we get this so that we have a consistent way of bringing people on board? And so those classes are, we meet three times and it's 30 to 60 minutes. You know, there's usually some good handouts and there's a good chunk of information there. Those are free inside the community, but we use them to lure people into the community.
1: Into the community.
0: We sell them for $99 to the public and then you know, try to get him in the community. And I also have other ways that I do training. So I've been hired to go to people's offices and, you know, train their staff, spend two days, that kind of stuff. And for me, that's far more interesting than the quote unquote coaching. I usually take one or two coaching clients a year. It's much easier for me to go put my hands on their employees and kind of be a manager for a day uh-huh. than it is to try to get, the boss to talk to the bosses, to talk to the managers, to talk to the employees, you know, that's a, that's a very involved process.
1: Yeah. Now you're also a prolific writer. How many books do you have out now?
0: I'm just finishing my 19th book on, uh, it will be cloud services in a month. It'll be about 300 pages. And uh, it's, I, I kind of look at it like this is your business model for the next five to 10 years.
1: Do you know what you're going to write? Meaning do you, have you already learned what you're writing or do you learn while you're writing? It depends on the book.
0: So in this case, so the last few books that I've had, I literally am taking my processes and procedures and documenting them for other people to use. I've, you know, in some ways I've I've been giving away whatever secret sauce there is, which mostly consists of I figured out how to do a bunch of stuff and then I show you how I do it. And I'm like in the cloud services, I'm very honest. I don't know everything about everything and I don't pretend to, I'm going to show you how I did it, how you can do it, how I've helped other people do it. And a lot of people will read that and they will do something that's different, but they will still understand like, Oh, I'm doing this piece and this piece. And I changed that piece. And, you know, I'm, I'm real big on giving people forms that they can edit in word that turn it from whatever I was doing to whatever they're doing. And, you know, Because we all start from a different place.
1: Well, you started from a different place. I looked on LinkedIn. You got a bachelor's and a PhD in political science. Yes. So what was that all about?
0: There's a certain irony. I am three chapters away from finishing my dissertation in political science. So I'm, you know, almost a doctor. But I did that for many, many years and I taught college for 10 years. And So that was, you know, one of my big loves, obviously. And I was writing my dissertation remotely. I got a grant and I moved out to California and my dissertation advisor was killed suddenly in a car accident. Oh, man. Then I had to go back to the University of Michigan, try to get together a new advisor and, you know, so forth and so on. And I'd been remote for about a year and a half and just got hard to get people interested in what I was doing, you know, when there was separation in time. So I worked on it for a while. And then eventually I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go get a real job. And, you know, if I come back to it, I come back to it. And I'd always loved computers. So I I bought my first VIC-20 in 1982. And then when I went to graduate school in 83, I got a Commodore 64. And I, you know, worked my way up from there. I taught myself how to use the Michigan terminal system, which is the documentation you just go online and you would say that print out volume one and it prints out this like two inch thick instruction manual on text editing (laughs) and on the mainframe. And I taught myself how to use the Michigan terminal system. And so I'd always loved computers. So the first real job I got after teaching was to put political information online on an HP 3000 mini and sell subscriptions to people in the early 90s when most of these people didn't have computers. So we actually rented them what were called telex systems, right? So we would rent them this interface and the phone coupler, and they would connect to there and they would be able to download legislation and track bills, all that kind of stuff. And then I them build I designed and, and helped them build a system based on Windows NT and SQL which were brand new at the time and so I uh, put that into a total of five states and then mm-hmm. when I left there I thought that I would be a consultant who really helped people get the most out of this political data but the first job that I got was to, run the internal tech support for Hewlett-Packard's Roseville plant. And it had nothing to do with politics. (laughs) And I haven't had a political job since then. So,
1: One last uh, question as we're wrapping up. You have another blog called Relax, Focus, Succeed. Where did that come from? And and is that a kind of a side passion of yours?
0: Uh, Yes, it's it's interesting. I wish it were less of a side passion and more of a central focus, but I wrote a book called Relax, Focus, Succeed. And it's about work-life balance. And it actually comes from me working through a very difficult part of my life. So I have rheumatoid arthritis. And when I first was diagnosed with this disease, it comes on very suddenly, like literally- Within three months, I went from being perfectly healthy to not being able to get out of bed for an hour in the morning. Wow. And then I was selling, I was buying one house and converting another house into a rental unit. It was the Y2K rollover, right? It was like a super, super busy area of my life. And I had to take some horrible, horrible drugs that kind of knocked me out every weekend for two years. And when that period was over, I had been very successful in my personal life, in my professional life. My business was growing. I had written a book, you know, like everything was heading in the right direction. And I did that during a period when I could only work from about 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., Monday through Friday. And I could not work evenings and I could not work weekends. And I was exhausted most of the time and i started thinking how did i do that you know and i analyzed what got me through that and what helped me to be so very productive and you know it amounts to the single most important thing i do in any element of my personal or professional life and that is i prioritize absolutely everything and i you know in some sense i'm kind of brutal about if i'm ignoring you it's probably not an accident <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people get, you know, irritated, like, oh, you never take my phone calls. I don't take anybody's phone calls. I, I don't answer the phone. I don't let anybody who works for me answer the phone.
1: You don't even have your phone number on your business card.
0: No, I don't want people to call me. You know, I, somebody, I was just on a call with somebody who said, hey, I'll call you this afternoon. I want to talk about that. And I said, I'll be answering phone calls in the nineteen thirty or the 2030s, you know, but I will not be answering before that. And I, I, I just, to me, a phone call is always an interruption and I call people back when it's appropriate and I literally just have phased it out, right? I have in my office, you know, all of these rules in place. We, our phones don't make noise. Our computers don't make noise. Things don't pop up on the screen. We don't, and we turn off all the reminders. We are not interrupt driven. We choose the single most important thing we need to do and we do that. And then we choose the next single most important thing we need to do. And we do that. And we only do one thing at a time. And it makes everyone in the company far more effective. And work comes out on a regular basis. And, you know, I do two or three videos a week. I do three or four blog posts a week. You know, I'm very, very active, but I'm always working on the most important thing I need to do which means that there's some crap that's just never going to get done. And (laughs) it is what it is.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that is fantastic advice, Carl, because it is so easy, especially today with your smartphone. There are bells and whistles and alerts and reminders going off constantly, and you can get so distracted from the task at hand.
0: Right. Well, and the mural behind me has three surfboards, and they say on them, relax, focus, succeed. Ah, nice. (laughs) Well, that sounds
1: like a book we need to get and read. All right. Well, fantastic. Great conversation, Carl. Any parting
0: thoughts? I just thank you for having me on and, you know, encourage people to check out my stuff. Probably the best place to start is either smallbizthoughts.com or smallbizthoughts.org and everything flows from there. All right. Excellent. You've got enough
1: content to keep us all busy for a while.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All All right. Great. Thanks. Take care. You
1: too. All right. Okay, guys. Well, that is a wrap with Carl Palachuk owner of Small Business Thoughts and a myriad of other companies that he runs, all in the mission of helping and training IT consultants to be better at the business side of business. And he works with hundreds, maybe thousands of, of small MSPs who or small break-fix companies who want to become MSPs, hugely knowledgeable on this topic. So that was an excellent conversation, kind of get his perspective on that market space, the convergence of what's happening in the channel and what they look for from their partner so be sure to join me next week for another channel journeys podcast and before then you could do me a huge favor by going into itunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast and please give me a rating and review that really helps out build up my audience and gives people a great impression of this show i hope you find the information in this podcast and all the other podcasts that we are doing very helpful and that they help you have an even better channel journey see you next time
0: Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.